Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. Law clerks have been called the unsung heroes of the judicial process as they play critical roles in the handling of legal and administrative matters that come before a judge. Yet, most of us don't fully understand what clerks do on a daily basis. My guests on today's show are a federal district court judge and her former law clerk, and they will help us to understand the judge-clerk relationship and how litigators can win cases by persuading judges and their clerks. So let me quickly introduce our guests. The Honorable Joan Lefko was appointed to the district court bench by President Clinton in the year 2000. She served as a United States bankruptcy judge for the Northern District of Illinois from 1997 to 2000 and as a magistrate judge from 1982 to 1997. She earned her BA from Wheaton College and her JD from Northwestern Pritzker Law School. She served as a law clerk for the Honorable Thomas Fairchild of the Seventh Circuit, and her additional legal experience includes civil litigation practice at the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago and service as an administrative law judge at the Illinois Fair Employment Practices Commission. She's also taught at the University of Miami Law School and trial advocacy at the John Marshall Law School. Judge Lefko, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And our second guest is Gerard Belfort. He's a six-year commercial litigation associate at Ballard Spar LLP in New York City. And prior to rejoining the firm, he served as a law clerk for Judge Lefko from 2020 to 2021. He earned his BA from Stony Brook University and his JD from Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. Welcome to the show, Gerard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, there's a quote about judicial clerkships that I saw, and it says that the partnership between a federal judge and the judge's clerk can be a splendid and mutually rewarding experience. So uh, we'd love to investigate that relationship. So starting with uh, Judge Lefko, what roles do your clerks play in your office and courtroom? My clerks are involved in just about everything I do. They observe in court, they draft motion, or Rulings on motions, they are active in assisting me at trials, uh, working on everything from motions and lemony, preparing a jury questionnaire if we use them, evidence questions during trial, legal questions that arise during trial, post-trial motions, jury instructions, the whole gamut for trials. And then, of course, we have all our motion practice, which is motions to dismiss, motions for summary judgment, and many other kinds of motions. Typically, I don't have them involved in discovery motions unless they, you know, present something that is more difficult. But we have some very able magistrate judges who probably ask their law clerks to deal with them. And then another thing that I do with my law clerks that some judges don't, is to involve them in sentencing in a criminal case. Most of our criminal cases are guilty pleas, so we have to deal with the very 
difficult and sometimes wrenching question of how how to sentence the person. I find it useful for to get their perspective after reading the pre-sentence report. So we sit down and talk about that and what they think. I find that very valuable. So I would certainly agree that it is a splendid and mutually rewarding relationship. I was a law clerk myself years ago on the on the appellate level. You know, I had a as long as my my judge, as we said, lived, you know, we were we saw each other from time to time and it was really I got to know other clerks that he had and I encouraged that in my own chambers as well. Excellent. Well, Gerard, let's talk about from the clerk's point of view, what benefits do you think you received uh, while clerking for Judge Lefko? I received many benefits from clerking. The benefits that I found to be the most invaluable are the deep connections I cultivated with Chambers personnel, exposure to various areas of the law, and the behind-the-curtain view of how the legal disputes are resolved. During my clerkship, I formed unforgettable bonds with the judge, current and former co-clerks, interns, the courtroom deputy, and the judge's assistant. I worked on over 100 civil and criminal litigation matters, including, but not limited to, claims for breach of contract, civil rights disputes, discrimination claims, various types of fraud, and patent infringement. Not only did I get to work on very interesting disputes with high stakes, but also I got to see how the sausage is made, also (laughs) known as the judge's order. Judges work very closely with their entire chambers before making decisions. Well, let's talk about uh, sort of how you got the gig. I think a lot of people are interested in, uh, a lot of our listeners would be interested in in hearing about sort of the process of applying and interviewing for your clerkship. So why don't we start with, you know, how did you decide where to look for your clerkship? Because you could have decided to apply with a state court judge, federal judges, a lot of different opportunities. So where did you begin your process? Absolutely. Everyone's process will not be the same. By the time I began to seriously attempt to obtain a clerkship. I was already several years out of law school, and I began with expressing my desires to my network. From there, I learned that if this was something I really wanted to do, I had to cast a very wide net. I I applied to state court judges, magistrate judges, bankruptcy judges, and staff attorney positions for the Court of Appeals. As far as interviewing, candidates must exude confidence and be able to articulate the litigation skills they have that can help a judge manage their docket. And when applying for this specific clerkship with Judge Lefko, how how did you so thinking about sort of people who are coming in to interview with Judge Lefko and federal court judges? What what kind of uh, tips would you give folks in applying and, and interviewing? Because I think a lot of people can get their foot in the door but not close a deal, so to speak. So what what other tips uh, would you give to to folks who are applying? Yes, I w- I would say to consider working for a few years before applying because that helps the judge a lot with her process. Because if you're fresh out of law school, it's harder to understand what's going on. So to the extent that you have some real world experience as a lawyer um, and you can bring that to the table and talk about the cases you worked on, that's very valuable uh, to a chambers and can help you stand out when you're in the interview, make sure to, you know, specifically describe the things that you worked on because other candidates are doing that. And if you don't, they will never know. You could have worked on 100 cases, but if you don't, you know, specifically say what you're working on, nobody's going to know. 
Got it. That's really helpful. And Judge Lefko, I think people from a, uh, are, would be looking from you know, a judge's perspective, what you look for in a clerkship candidate. Can you give some tips on successfully applying and inter- interviewing and any sort of pet peeves that you might have in terms of things that kind of may irritate you when uh, people come in and, and interview? <laughs> well, everyone knows that clerkships are very much desired by new attorneys and it's a very competitive process. We have the federal courts have a system called Oscar, which is an online application process. And I used to use that, but I'm a senior judge now, so I've gotten a little bit more informed about how I do it. So I'm probably not typical. But in terms of what I look for, I look for do they have the skills that it takes to be a law clerk, which may be different from, you know, being a practicing lawyer, because we, it's a pretty intellectual pursuit. Uh, you have to have good legal ability, good analytical skills, good writing skills, attention to detail, because I depend on my clerk getting it right. I don't check every site that they make to the record and things like that. So I have to have confidence that they have that kind of attention to detail. No, I look at grades. I look at recommendations. I think it's um, one of the, you come down to a matter of choosing among some very well-qualified people. If you get an interview as a law, for a law clerk position, it's already been determined that you could do the job because there are so many really able applicants. So I look for someone who has what you might call the personality that, that I feel will fit in well with chambers. And I actually have kind of established this practice of after we interview a panel of candidates, I ask each person, including my administrative assistant, my courtroom deputy, and my clerks to give me the names of three people that they think, you know, they would be happy to work with. And then I make the decision, but that information, you know, if somebody feels that they really would have a hard time working with that person, then I feel that it's more a personality thing rather than, you know, some obviously not some prohibited reason, you know, that would affect me. I've had very good luck with all my clerks in that they're beautiful people. I really enjoy working with them. Give us a little bit of a historical perspective in terms of, I, I know that you clerked with, in the Seventh Circuit. Mm-hmm. What did the process look like back then and how has it changed over time in terms of the application process, the interview and that sort of thing? <laughs> well, I'm going to reveal my superannuation here, but I... I was a law clerk 50 years ago, approximately. And at that time, there were maybe six or seven appellate judges in the Seventh Circuit and the same number of judges in the district court. So it was um, much less bureaucratic and much, I would say, more informal in a way. I mean, I I did interview with judges the same way we do now. But, of course, it was all paper applications. You still have to have recommendations, so on. That's all the same. But 
It's just that now we have a surfeit of applications, I think, much more than in the past. Got it. All right. Well, thinking about, so once a clerk gets a position with the judge, Judge Lefko, what are your views as to how clerks can make the most out of uh, a judicial clerkship? I think, of course, I would want them to work hard and, you know, do their best work and feel free to engage with the judge. I mean, different judges have different personalities and it, it depends on who you're working for. But I really want my clerks to come to me and say, I'm having, I'm struggling with this issue or I think you're wrong on this issue. You know, I, I, I depend on them to keep me on the straight and narrow because they're obviously smarter than I am most of the time. So it, you need somebody who, who's willing to interact in that way. And I think that's a great opportunity. The other thing that I would recommend is, as time permits, is to go around the courthouse and, you know, observe other judges and how they run their courtrooms and maybe see some great lawyers on trial. They even sometimes we listen to the, or they do, I really don't take the time, but listen to appeals of cases that we decided to see, you know, how we're doing in the Seventh Circuit. You know, there are lots of things like that that are available to a clerk and then getting to know other clerks as well. That's part of building your network. I'm still friends with my co-clerk and other clerks that worked on the Seventh Circuit you know, way back when. Really interesting. Well, Gerard, let's bring you back into, into the conversation. I know the litigators who are listening to the show are really interested in hearing about how clerks are involved in decisions on contested motions. And Judge Lefko talked about kind of the back and forth that that occurs and specifically, you know, how a clerk is involved in, in maybe telling a judge that they have a different point of view than, you know, what the judge uh, might have. So tell us some more about kind of the uh, how you were involved in decisions on contested motions. Yes. So law clerks usually take the first stab at drafting a proposed order for the judge based on the party's motions, responses, and replies. For less complicated issues, our interns might even work on it at first. But once the proposed order is presentable, the law clerks work closely with their co-clerks to enhance the analysis and readability of the proposed order. So it's a lot of back and forth between the co-clerks just, you know, making sure that we got it right and just making it better. And after that, we we share it with the judge and go through the same process. And this could take anywhere from a few days to, to several months, but it's a very deep process that involves a lot of parties and the entire chambers. Sometimes we have a disagreement. Um, we recently had a motion to suppress that both my clerks wanted to deny and I wanted to I wanted to grant. So it ended up granted <laughs> because I get to make the decision. But it was a it was kind of a it was fun, the back and forth. And you get so, you know, you have to think about the other person's point of view and see whether it's persuasive. Because we all have our biases, our, we judges and obviously the clerks as well. So it gives you an opportunity to test those biases. And how does that back and forth work, uh, Judge Lefko? Is that just sitting around a table discussing the case? Is it memos that clerks might write to you? How, how, did, how, did that work in, how does that work in your courtroom? Well, 
It's sometimes it's informal. We're just sitting around talking, but typically, you know, the process is as Gerard said, he'll, he would draft a ruling, an opinion or ruling, you know, it could be very brief or it could be pages. And then I take a look at it. And if I see something I don't, I wonder about or I think needs to be elaborated on or something, I, I will make marginal questions and we just send an email each other back and forth until we get to the end of it and we can both live with the way it is. But then, you know, the other clerk has read the material because of their peer review. So sometimes the three of us are are talking about it. Is that that peer review, is that another clerk in your office or is that another a clerk in another judge's chambers? No, my other clerk. So I have two clerks, so they exchange drafts before they give it to me. Got it. And so let's talk about how litigators can best persuade judges and their clerks. Obviously, we all want to win our contested motions, win cases for our clients. Can you talk about, you know, things that litigators get right, things that litigators get wrong? How can we do a better job persuading judges and their clerks? So we'll, we'll start with uh, Judge Lefko. Okay. Um, well, I, th- I think Preparation and, you know, teeing up your best arguments. Um, we do a tremendous amount of uh, summary judgment, motion, litigation, our opinions. And there are a lot of work. A, a lot of it is because the lawyers are not either very skilled or they don't want to put in the time and effort to really focus on what are the issues of material fact that will decide this case. So sometimes it's a nightmare. And when you see one that's well-prepared, it's a great joy. (laughs) In briefing, it's just, I guess, if you ask for a pet peeve, is lawyers who will take favorable language out of a case that they find online, you know, Westlaw or Lexis, and cut, paste, drop it in. Well, when you actually look at the case they're citing, it could be, number one, contrary to really the position that lawyer's taking or are not really helpful because it's readily distinguishable. So I really recommend you actually read the cases (laughs) that you're citing and try to relate them to the situation that the court is dealing with. You know, another thing is don't overstate your position. I think the lawyer builds a reputation with uh, having candor with the court and and being a straight arrow about what they say and how they present their claims or defenses. You know, we remember that. And, you know, when in doubt, you know, I know I can rely on this attorney. That's a good thing. I think those are great tips. Uh, Gerard, did you want to jump in with any uh, tips that you might have for us as litigators to better persuade judges and their clerks? Yes, I would say I agree with everything the judge said. And in addition, to be clear and transparent about the law and the facts, as as she mentioned, sometimes attorneys overstate and they, they, you know, when you're representing a client, you almost are willing to say whatever you have to say to win. But when you're on the court side, we're focused on what the right answer is, not just what sounds the best. So there are going to be times when 
the law and the facts are unfavorable for you, but you shouldn't try to bend them to just to win because the judge and her clerks are able to sift through that. And as she mentioned, it could ruin your reputation. So I have a question for both of you. Is there any type of motion, whether it's a motion to dismiss or discovery motion that you see all the time and it's just they're filed too often because it, the, the law is so circumscribed that they're rarely granted and, and you wish that lit- litigators would file less of, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, wh- what, what would that motion be uh, for, for, for both of you? So, uh, Gerard, what would that be? I would say a, a motion for sanctions. Is like, that's like the go-to everyone wants that. And I actually have a second one, which is, you know, I learned that I kind of hate uh, are the motions to reconsider. <laughs> uh, those are horrible, um, you know, because the chambers, we spend a lot of time and then, you know, the attorneys come back and tell us we got it wrong. And then we, we spend more time. But those are my top two that I wish there were less of. Got it. Judge, did you have any any favorites that you wish we would file less of? Um, well, motions to dismiss are kind of have gotten to be just routine, I think. And at least eight times out of 10, you're going to deny the motion because let the person put on their claim, you know, summary judgment. That's another issue. Once the evidence, all the evidence is out there and then that, you know, then legitimately maybe the case should go out on summary judgment. But I don't like the motion to dismiss that's filed just as a routine matter. Some things like statute of limitations is a, you know, one you can say, well, even if this is all true, filed too late. Or I think the Supreme Court is, you know, maybe not done us a great favor by moving from trials over to paper or no longer paper, but we'll call it paper briefing of motions as a way of resolving cases. Interesting. Tell me a little bit more about, about your view on that, because I think people would be really interested to hear more. Well, for example, qualified immunity is the thing in the civil rights field that the defense, uh, police misconduct allegations, uh, you know, the defense will often move to dismiss based on qualified immunity. Well, we don't even really know the facts yet on qualified immunity. But on the other hand, the Supreme Court has made the doctrine so broad that you can understand that maybe it's worth a try. So, so they do. I mean, I'm not the Supreme Court, so it's not up to me to say, but so often I think whether an officer has acted, you know, excessive force, for example, that's sort of the quintessential jury question, right? Did this officer go too far? That's why you have a jury. But the Supreme Court, for you know, it's been 40 years that we've been dealing with qualified immunity. So that's my little beef with the Supreme <laughs> Court. <laughs> Got it. Got it. 
Um, so let me ask a question about diversity and judicial clerkships. So according to the National Association for Law Placement, of the more than 3,100 graduates from the class of 2019 who said they earned a judicial clerkship, 77% were white, 23% were graduates of color. Judge Lefko, I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of diversity in the ranks of judicial clerks and how can we make more progress in that area? I was kind of surprised when you said 77% white because I thought it would be more than that. So I guess I'm thinking there's been some progress. (laughs) But just as the bench needs the viewpoint and experience of people from different ethnicities, you know, people who have experienced the limitations of a physical disability or, you know, discrimination, you know, that that really can affect the viewpoint. And of course, you're only one judge in the court, in the district court, so your viewpoint is your viewpoint. But if you have a clerk who has had a different sort of experience, and there are good examples of that with access to public transportation if you're a person in a wheelchair or, you know, things that if you're not in that situation, you don't even think about it really. And of course, racial discrimination and those sex discrimination, which of course I'm a a witness to. So I think having those perspectives around you are very, that is very helpful And then I think it's also important to give what we used to call minority, but diverse attorneys the opportunity to have the experience of clerking so that when they go out and practice law, they have that background that so many more young white lawyers have. Interesting. So we are nearing the time for the end of our episode and just wanted to hear any final thoughts that both of you might have. Uh, But before doing so, I just wanted to remind our listeners that the ABA section of litigation does sponsor the Judicial Intern Opportunity Program, which supports judicial internship opportunities for law students who are members of racial and ethnic groups that are traditionally underrepresented in the profession, students with disabilities, students who are economically disadvantaged, students who identify as LGBTQ+, and women, of course. Law students can find out more information and apply for the JIOP program at ambar.org slash JIOP. That's J-I-O-P. And listeners can, of course, donate funds to support JIOP at that same uh, web address. So, uh, Gerard, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, I know that you are or you were um, a JIOP uh, program member. You're a JIOP alum. I think people would be curious on how uh, being a JIOP intern um, has helped your career and uh, interested in hearing your experience. Yes, uh, JIOP is an excellent program. It exposes diverse candidates to the federal courts. I, I was a JIOP intern back in 2014, and I highly recommend students to get involved with that because most of the students who are able to land these positions don't get paid anything, but JIOP provides a small stipend, which is very helpful for this subset of individuals who may already be struggling. So that additional unbelievable experience, plus um, it's, you know, a small stipend and it just could completely change the trajectory of your career. And it definitely has changed mine and affirmed that I want to do litigation. 
Excellent. Uh, judge Lefko, any final thoughts? I know that you, you're a judge who takes JIAP interns in your chambers. So any final thoughts on JIAP or anything else today? Well, I think it's a very great program. I've really enjoyed getting to know the young people who are the next generation of lawyers. You know, they keep me up to date and I learn from them. They learn from me. And it's, you know, it's just nice, especially in the summertime, having them in chambers. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you both for uh, delving into what it's like to to be a clerk in chambers, uh, being a judge and, and working with, uh, with your clerks. It's uh, been a very learning experience, very beneficial experience for me uh, to listen to this conversation and just really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being on the show. Well, it's, it's nice talking with you. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. Great to see you again, Daryl. Great to see you as well, Dave. Well, I understand you have a tip about conflicts of interest for us today. At some point in your legal career, it's very likely that a conflict will arise. Today, we will discuss what conflicts of interest look like and what the ABA model rules of professional conduct have to say about uh, what we should do in the event that a conflict arises. The first rule that I want to touch is model rule 1.7, which involves conflicts of interest with current clients. That rule says a lawyer shall not represent a client if the representation involves a concurrent conflict of interest. The rule defines concurrent conflict of interest as one that exists if the representation of one client will be directly adverse to another client or there is a significant risk that the representation of one or more clients will be materially limited to the lawyer's responsibilities to another client, a former client, a third person or by personal interest of the lawyer. There are some exceptions that will allow a lawyer to represent a client, notwithstanding the existence of a concurrent conflict of interest. Those exceptions may be that the lawyer reasonably believes that the lawyer will be able to provide competent and diligent representation for each affected client. The representation is not prohibited by law. The representation does not involve the assertion of a claim by one client against another client represented by that same lawyer in the same litigation or other proceeding before the tribunal, and each affected client gives informed consent. When we talk about informed consent, the best way to get informed consent from your clients would be in writing because you don't want to get into a situation where you may be handling a matter and you did not inform either of the potential clients or your current clients that there may be a conflict of interest. And then that may put you into some kind of legal uh, quagmire, if you will, that is before the court. But if you have that documentation in writing that a person signed off on the representation of an individual client that may pose a conflict, you will likely provide yourself some cover there in the courts. The next rule that I want to cover and discuss is Model Rule 1.9, which is the duty to former clients. And that rule says a lawyer who has formally represented a client in a matter shall not thereafter represent another person in the same or a substantially related matter in which the person's interests are materially adverse to the interests of the former client unless that former client gives consent. And again, you all want to get that consent in writing. Anytime that you are trying to get consent to represent an individual where a conflict may uh, be present, you want to get that in writing. And there are a number of ways that you can get that consent in writing. That may be by providing a formal letter that you send through the mail 
to the former client expressing that you uh, have a new client that you would like to represent and a, and a conflict may arise to get that approval, you may provide that letter to them and then at the end of the letter may offer a system where they can check yes or no that they agree to your representation or that they uh, don't agree with the representation. And you always want them to get them to sign their name uh, to that document and to even take it a step further to get uh, levels of kind of clarity in the communication, you may even want to have that document notarized by the former client before they send it back to you. And then that way you can have it on file. Another way that you can gain consent is by sending an electronic piece of mail to your former client and let them know that there is a new client that may be in place that may pose a a risk or may pose a conflict to your representation. And in order to get that approval, you would need to gain consent from that client and that client will offer uh, consent via reply to that email indicating that they consent to your representation of the new client if they are a former client of yours. The model rule 1.9 also says that a lawyer shall not knowingly represent a person in the same or substantially related matter in which a firm which the lawyer was formerly associated had previously represented a client, one whose interests are materially adverse to that person, and two, about whom the lawyer had acquired information protected by rules 1.6 and 1.9c that is material to the matter unless the former client gives informed consent. And what that basically means is that let's say that you are currently working at a firm and you are assisting on a matter and you decide that you leave that for, well, for client A, and you leave that firm and you join another firm and the firm that you happen to join may have represented client B in that particular matter against your former client A. Once you do that and you join that firm, you want to get consent from your former client, which will be client A, for you to, one, join that firm that may have posed a particular, a particular risk, but uh, they it's under constraints of 1.9C, which is the next part of the rule, which says a lawyer who has formally represented a client in a matter or whose present or former firm has formally represented a client in a matter shall not thereafter use information relating to the representation of to the disadvantage of the former client, except as these rules would permit or require with respect to a client or when the information has become generally known or reveal information relating to the representation, except as these rules would permit or require with respect to a client. So going back to our scenario with client A and client B, when you join the new firm that represents client B in that matter, I think the the best way that will alleviate any particular conflicts of interest is that once you prepare to join that firm, and actually maybe even before you start, you send correspondence to client A informing them about your disassociation with your previous firm and intent to join your next firm and provide information that says, hey, this firm actually represents client B on a particular matter and I am seeking your approval or your consent to join this firm. But I think once the due diligence of the firms that even once you join it, even if client A gives consent for you to join that firm that represents client B, I think the best move for the new firm to avoid any malpractice issues or any conflicts of interest would be to allow that associate or a lawyer to join the firm, but to put up what we call a Chinese wall or the ethical wall that blocks you off from working on any matters that may be associated with your former client so that there is not any appearance of a, of any disadvantage to the former client from your other law firm and also to help kind of cut down on any conflicts of interest that may arise. Uh, so the best way to do it is really to kind of 
wall yourself off of a matter and not provide any information or not even look at the matter uh, so that there's not any appearance that there may be some form of trickiness to the click case or that you're not providing information that should not be there. And lastly, uh, it's important to note that under Model Rule 1.10b, that when a lawyer has terminated an association with a firm, the firm is not prohibited from thereafter representing a person with interest materially adverse to those of a client represented by the formerly associated lawyer and not currently represented by the firm. Unless one, the matter is the same or substantially related to that which the formerly associated lawyer represented the client. And two, any lawyer remaining in the firm that has information protected by Rule 1.6 and 1.9c that is material to the matter is walled off of representation of that. Uh, formerly adverse client. Uh, so that really just shows that if at any point that you may leave a firm, that if there's any conflict that may have been associated with that particular lawyer, once that lawyer leaves the firm, there no longer is a conflict unless there may be lawyers that may be left behind that may have worked on that matter. And the best way, again, to do that is really to form that uh, Chinese wall that will block them off the matter and not offer any information that may appear to uh, be a conflict of interest. And lastly, what I want to leave you with is if there there's ever a question regarding whether a conflict of interest may arise in your practice, please don't hesitate to use your resources by contacting an ethics lawyer to get an opinion. And if you aren't aware of any uh, ethics lawyer in your area, I would encourage you to reach out to your uh, state bar and ask them for contacts or referrals that may be able to provide you an ethics opinion if your state bar doesn't have an entity or, or a group of lawyers that can provide that uh, information to you. So as you go along in your legal career, just make Make sure and be mindful of potential conflicts of interest and know what you should do and uh, look at the model rules of professional conduct provided by the ABA to make sure that you are navigating correctly and steering clear of any conflicts of interest. And those have been my tips today uh, regarding conflicts of interest. Great. Well, thanks, Daryl. And so glad that you're on our side of the ethical wall and uh, hope uh, that you'll come back on a future episode. Most definitely. Well, thanks, Daryl. And that's all we have for our episode today. I want to thank Gail Howard and our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera, for their help with guest preparation and booking. My gratitude also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, as well as Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.